that uh, we are given about stepping out and just trusting. Whew. If you will, this morning, turn to the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. A couple of weeks ago, we, we started this book, and this morning we will continue in our study. And at the end of the service this morning, we will uh, partake in communion together. So looking forward to that as well. The introduction that we went through a couple of weeks ago revealed to us in this book, in the book of Revelation, that it is all about Christ being revealed or Christ revealed, which is the, the title of the series that we will be in for the rest of this year, at least. The fact that Christ is the one that's, that's revealed throughout this whole book. It is called, or we call it, the book of Revelation, but the title itself speaks for itself in that it is the book, or it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Most Bibles have that as the title. Not like other books that we have, uh, epistles to the Ephesians or whatever. This is just the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus being the center, the central figure, the main point, Jesus is the main um, object or the object revealed from start to finish in this whole book. And there is more of Jesus, like I shared a couple weeks ago, there is more of Jesus in this book than in any other book. And if we as a church get caught up in anything else other than Jesus in the sensationalism that is the book of Revelation because some people get so excited about the book of Revelation because they want to know the end times, which is great to know. We need to understand that. We need to know our eschatology in that sense. We, we, we want to know those things, but, but we are not looking for the Antichrist to return, to come. We are looking for Jesus Christ. That's what we're looking for. And this book, of all the books, speaks so much about Jesus. And so if we get caught up in other things other than Jesus, then we miss Jesus in this book. We miss the whole revelation of Jesus Christ. And so this introduction let us know, it lets us know who was being revealed and how it was revealed. Jesus is the one being revealed. And, he, and he, he revealed it through an angel that came to the servant John. And that revelation would be a blessing to those who read it, who hear it, and who keep it. There would be a blessing attached to it. So now we get into the salutation, the salutation or greeting portion of this revelation, which I kind of find interesting as I was kind of looking at it and studying it, that the first three verses reveal so much. It's quite a greeting, you know, that are revealed to us so much. What more can be revealed? There's a lot more to be revealed. And, and this morning, I truly want to be able to, to do these, this portion justice. And so let's read verses 1 through 8 this morning. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. 
And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness of the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to, uh, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins by his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Father, I do pray, God, that you would give me just the understanding of what this portion says, that I might be able to convey it to my brothers and sisters, Lord God. And so please let your spirit fall upon me right now and let your spirit fall upon my brothers and sisters to receive all that you have. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 4, starting in verse 4, where John says to the seven churches which are in Asia, the Apostle John here lets us know who he is now writing to. He had gotten the revelation from the Spirit or from the angel, the servant of God, came and gave it to him, but now It wasn't just for John to keep. It wasn't a revelation just for John to to just um, not share it with anybody. No, his his command or his, his job was now to share it. And this is who he is sharing it with. He is sharing it with the seven churches. They were real churches, local churches that he is referring to. Now, when we think of Asia today, most of the time we, we often think of, of, of China and all the Asian countries in that area right there that, uh, that, that, that is there. Or sometimes we think of the whole continent of Asia, which is the largest of the seven continents. Um, we might go in that direction and think that, but, but the, the people that he's writing to in Asia, the churches that he is writing to in Asia... He's referring to Asia Minor. Back in the day, it was considered Asia Minor. What we know today as modern-day Turkey, it was considered Asia Minor. And, and he's talking about this place. It, you know, If you looked at a map and you looked at Turkey, it is the, all these churches are on the western side of, of Turkey. That is where they are located. And they were all local churches. And it's interesting because they are seven churches. And the number seven will come up many, many times 
throughout our time in the book of Revelation. It is an important number. It is a number or a symbol for completeness or perfection. And so we will run across it several, several times. But why these seven churches? Well, they, they weren't the most popular or the biggest around there, but they were churches nonetheless. It could be that John, the writer of this revelation, was affiliated to each one of these churches. It is believed that John settled in Ephesus, became the bishop in Ephesus, one of the main leaders. And, and, and so um, it's quite possible that each of these churches um, were in a different place, spiritually speaking, and they needed to hear this revelation. Now, it, it is possible that they were chosen because of their geographical location. They somewhat, I, I, I put down my notes that they somewhat make an, a circle, but they really don't. It's more like an oblong circle like this. If, if, if Ephesus is on the coast, it kind of goes up and comes back down like this. So it kind of makes a long circle, oblong, whatever. Which is kind of important to, to, to keep in mind, given the vision that we will study next week and how he is in the midst of the seven churches. That Jesus is in the midst of the seven churches. Now we know, if you know the book of Revelation, we know that Jesus does have something to say to each one of these churches. He will address each one of them in chapters 2 and 3. So you can read on ahead uh, and, and see each of the churches. You can go on Google and you can like just punch in the seven churches of Revelation and it'll tell you where each one of them is. And so now you can get a better understanding of how this oblong thing kind of looks. But these churches are important. Maybe not to the world, but they are important to God because he has something to share with them. They are important to Jesus Christ. And so John continues with his greeting to the churches and he extends to them their first blessing. The blessing that we learned about in verse 3, that there is a blessing attached to those who read, hear, and keep the words of this prophecy. He extends this blessing to them. And by all rights, we get to receive those same blessings today, and that is grace and peace. What a blessing those are. Those are, those are our first blessings that we get when we get into the book of Revelation here, that, that he extends this grace to you and peace. The Bible tells us that Jesus is full of grace in John 1.14. In Ephesians 2.14, it tells us, that Jesus himself is our peace. So when, when we hear grace and peace, he's talking about Jesus. He is, our, he is full of grace and extends that grace to us, and he is our peace. And, and, and so with, with all that will be revealed throughout this book, knowing that Jesus is grace and that Jesus is peace, what did the believers really have to fear? Even in the letters that Jesus will address each of these churches, he has something to say to them and their rebukes oftentimes. 
But if you have grace and peace on your side, and he is grace and peace, even when he rebukes you, he's he's blessing. (laughs) He's giving you a blessing that if you repent, things will go great. And so this, this blessing, this grace and peace, it was a, a common greeting among the Jews. But to the Christians, it meant something even deeper. Because they were now under grace. And that grace brought about the peace of God and, the, and peace with God. It's interesting because persecution was, was, was on the rise and we know that even by, by John, who's writing this, that he had been exiled to the island of Patmos um, because of his Christianity. So persecution was on the rise. But they had grace and peace upon them. Throughout the persecution, they were able to endure any kind of persecution because Jesus is grace and peace. So now that John tells us where, uh, now he tells us where this grace and peace is from. He shares with us the very source of this blessing of grace and peace and where it comes from. And he says that it comes from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now, at first glance, when you look at that saying, you might think that it is Jesus Christ speaking because of what is said in verse 8. He says the very same thing. But as you cross-reference this portion in verse 4, as I cross-referenced it, it took me to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. And I'm going to give you several scriptures today, so you might want to jot these down. But Exodus 3.14 says, And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This reference went directly to God the Father. And in studying this, John is speaking of the eternal nature of God the Father, past, present, and future. From eternity past to eternity future or, or, or forever, never ending, He is the Almighty. He is, he is the one that, that transcends all time. He is the timeless being who always was, who always is, and will always be. There is none other like Him. People often think, well, where does God come from? That's a silly question for us because we can't even comprehend that. He has always been. I know, but where it's like, don't even go there. Your little pea brain will explode. Trying to understand eternity because for us, something can last an eternity if you are at... McDonald's, and they've taken more than 10 minutes. It is an eternity for us, right? But when we really think about an eternity or God being eternal, God the Father who, who was, who is, and is to come, when we talk about that, we can't even comprehend it because He's infinite. And our minds are finite. And I think this is where so many people get, get caught up in trying to figure it all out. Oh, man, you, you, it will take you a lifetime trying to figure it out. And the smartest of the smartest of the smartest in humanity has tried to figure it all out. And they are reduced to nothing once again because God is infinite. He is timeless. He transcends all. He is always 
He was always, he is always today, and he will always be. This title of him who is and who was and is to come describes God the Father as Yahweh, or what we know as Jehovah. It means I am, the great I am. I am what you need me to be today. I am your peace. I am your rest. I am your, your, your everything. That's who God is. When he says, I am, that I am, he is all that we ever need. That's who he is. And then he says, where else this blessing comes from of grace and peace It not only comes from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, his throne. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought there was only one Holy Spirit. There is, so stop your woe there's. Let me explain. No, let me sum up here. He is speaking of the completeness the perfection and the fullness of the Holy Spirit who is symbolized or described in, in a sevenfold way that we see in Isaiah chapter 11, verses two and, uh, 1 and 2. This is what is meant by the, the seven spirits in Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. He says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, And a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And so here we have the seven characteristics of God the Holy Spirit. That's what is meant by the the seven spirits that are before his throne. Because the spirit of God, God the Holy Spirit, is the spirit of the Lord. One, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might or power, the spirit of knowledge, And he is the spirit of the fear of the Lord. And I find this fascinating. That the seven spirits are before the throne of God. And that in all the spirit's fullness. In all that he is, he dwells in us. We are to have God enthroned in our hearts. You know, as I look at that, I'm going, man, you're seeing this picture of the seven spirits, the fullness of the Holy Spirit in the presence of His throne. And as I was contemplating that, I'm going, whoa, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He, that that whole fullness is to dwell in us because God dwells on the heart or dwells in my heart. He is to be enthroned there. He is to be my everything. And so if God is enthroned in my heart, then His Spirit, the fullness of who His Spirit is, dwells in us, dwells in us. Isn't that amazing? 
And then in verse 5, he tells us again where this grace and peace comes from, from him who is, who was, and who, who is to come, from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. Here, here we get the third person of the Trinity, and it's kind of ironic or kind of, I don't know, different because usually God, the, 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 the Son, is usually mentioned second when we're talking about the Holy Spirit. Because, uh, but here he, he is the central figure of Revelation, and, and in his, you know, he's introduced last here, mainly because, probably because, there is so much to say about him. Not that the Father and the Spirit were, were not as important, but, but this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we are being revealed, it is being revealed to us more of who the second person in the Trinity is. And so Jesus here is introduced in a threefold way, who he is in light of his humanity and his deity, three truths that define the very essence of who he is. It says that he is the faithful witness. The faithful witness. What Jesus speaks is truth and it is always reliable because he is truth. There is no lie in Jesus. He is the faithful witness. He is not a truth. He is the truth. All sorts of truth stems from Jesus Christ. So he cannot help but be a faithful witness. Everything that comes out of his mouth is faithful. Everything is reliable and everything is true. It's interesting when, when he is standing before Pilate, and Pilate is, is you know, going through this dilemma because he doesn't want to crucify him. And, and he's hearing all these things. And he tells Jesus, he asks Jesus, what is truth? And what he didn't realize was truth was staring him in the face. Jesus is truth. There is no other truth except Jesus. Because every, every truth stems from him. Because he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Oh my goodness gracious. Jesus is the truth teller. And then it says that he is the firstborn from the dead. Because of the resurrection from the dead, his resurrection from the dead, which he raised himself from the dead, it says in John chapter 2. It's like, who does that? A dead person can't even think. But Jesus raises himself from the dead. He is the firstborn. Now there's others that have been raised from the dead. But guess what? Each and every one of those people that were ever raised from the dead died again. They died in the physical. But Jesus rose again to never die again. He is, he is the, the, the prominent one. He is the, the, the highest in priority one. He is, he is the most important of all the resurrection because after his resurrection, everybody else becomes or, 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 or has life because of him. Because he says, I am the resurrection. He's the one that takes life. He's the one that gives life, takes life, and gives it back. He is the resurrection. He is the one that conquered death to die no more. And so Jesus is the life giver. 
He is the truth teller and he is the life giver. And then it tells us that this blessing comes from the ruler over the kings of the earth. We are told in Matthew, in the last chapter of Matthew, that all authority was given to Jesus while he was here on earth. And we see that. We see that all authority was given to him when he calmed the storms, man. He just spoke it and it happened. We see that even Satan, when he comes because he's the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air, that even Jesus had to bow down from him and flee from him. Jesus had all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth. Jesus has authority over all the earth and for that matter, over all the universe. And we see that at the book, at the end of the book of Revelation, we see him coming as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. There is none other than him. And so Jesus is the lawmaker as well. He is the life giver. He is, he is the truth teller. He is all these things. And so after that introduction of the triune God, the Apostle John just kind of bursts out. He blurts out this doxology, this, this praise, this declaration of who Jesus is. At the end of verse 5 and all of verse 6, where, where he says, To him who loved us and washed us from our sins with his own, in his own blood and has made us kings and priests in his kingdom, uh, in his father, in his God and father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I get a little excited and my dyslexia kind of kicks in when I'm getting a little excited that I'm looking at all these words that aren't there. Arr. I could blame it on my, on, on my blood clot, but I, I've been doing good. Jeez. But I won't. <laughs> you guys probably go, quit milking it. No. Um, Romans 5, 8 and 9 says, But God demonstrated his own love towards us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, much more than having been justified by his blood. We shall be saved from the wrath through him. When we think of all that God is, all the blessings that he's already showed us in these short verses here, when we think of who God is and what he has done for us, knowing who we are, or knowing who we were and knowing who we are even today, that should unleash this praise, this doxology, if you will, in our lives. Like John, to just begin to blurt out, blessed be your name. Man, all glory and dominion belongs to you. Because he's done all these things in our lives. We should truly be overwhelmed every day. Just knowing how much he loves us. The fact that he sent his son to show us just how much he loves us. God showed us just how much he loved us once for all by washing, loosening, freeing us from the sins, from our sins with his own blood. Yes, I know that it is the blood of Jesus, 
but in reality it is the blood of God upon us. God himself bled for us. He loves us that much. We're going to partake in communion at the end. Man, we should be so excited to remember his death because it is his death, his blood that was shed that we get to experience the newness of life because of it. So he continues to love us, washing us through his blood. And then verse 6, I want to read it through the Amplified. It says, And formed us into a kingdom, a royal race, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and power and majesty and dominion throughout the ages forever and ever. Amen. So be it. Man, oh man. You don't know how to worship? Go right here and just repeat those words when you don't know what else to say. Honor him that way. To be able to say to him be glory and dominion and power and glory and majesty forever and ever, Lord. That should bring you to your knees <laughs> in worship. First Peter 3.9 tells us, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We should just stop right now and just worship. What the heck, right? Hallelujah. Man, he has done all those things, and we get to just worship him because of that. He has called us to be, not, not, not just he loved us and he washed us, but he also has made us a kingdom or kings and priests for him. To be able to go before his presence. A priest in the Old Testament was one guy. You had to be born into it. You couldn't do it on your own. You had somebody else to do it for you. But no, he says, you. You are a priest. You can enter into the throne room of grace anytime, anywhere. Wow. Now, what amazes me here is the fact that God sees us like this today knowing what i know about you (laughs) why would he want you today (laughs) knowing what i know about me (laughs) why would he ever allow me into his presence but he does he truly does he looks at us today as kingdom and kings and priests He has made us a holy nation. You. He has allowed you in. It amazes me that God sees us this way. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Verse 7. Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so. Amen. This verse is truly the overriding theme of the book of Revelation. Here we literally see the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
When John finishes his doxology, his praise, his declaration of who Jesus is and what he has done for us, he announces the good news of Jesus' second coming. He announces he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. He is not talking about the rapture of the church here. That's not what he's talking about. He is talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. His second coming is the revelation. He is not coming the way he came the first time as the lamb who comes, who the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No, he is coming back as the lion of the tribe of Judah to deal with the world that has not turned from their sin. He came the first time to forgive sin. He's coming the second time to deal with sin. He came as a lamb the first time. He's coming as a lion the next time. Jesus is no sissy. (laughs) He is no sissy, man. When we start seeing, even next week, what we read, and you can read on ahead, when it talks about who he is and his description. Oh, he came humbly. But next time, he's coming with the rod of iron. Amen. It's not going to be some obscure thing that, that the angels have to tell these shepherds out in the middle of nowhere that he's been born somewhere out in, out, out in some barn. John says, every eye, every eye will see him. Whether they like it or not, whether they believe it or not, every eye will see him. Those who are still here on the earth, they will see his appearing. They will not be able to hide. Even those who pierced them. Now, obviously, he's not talking about the guards who who pierced them up on the cross. Obviously, right? Because those cats have been dead. No, he is talking and referring to the nation of Israel. His appearing will be so unmistakable that even the Jews will recognize who he is. Somehow they will know that he is the one that their forefathers crucified. They will know that. And this reference, it's it's referencing the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 12. When Israel is restored, they will mourn over their past rejection of Christ. Isaiah chapter 12, verses 10 through through 12, he says, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they shall look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. And grieve for him as one grieved for, the first, for a firstborn. In that day there shall be great mourning in Jerusalem. Like the mourning of Hadad and Rim, Rim, Riman, Rimon. And the plains of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family by itself. The family of the house of David by itself. And their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves. They will know, and this prophecy will come true on that day. In Matthew twenty four thirty, 
Speaking of Jesus, Jesus talking, he says, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Hmm. Jesus will return with the clouds. Just the way he left in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 and, and 11, that prophecy that the angel spoke when, when the, the disciples were gazing at him as he left, that the, that the angel said, the same manner in which he left, he will return. That prophecy will come to pass. And our response should be like that of John's, even so, amen. Let it be so, Lord. And then in verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and is, who is to come, the Almighty. Now that John is done with his introduction, it almost seems as though Jesus takes this opportunity to introduce himself. And we know that it's him because the letters are in red. I'm just kidding. That's not the reason we know that it is him. Because he only has a red pen, right? No, we know that this is him because it is his revelation. And he introduced, it's like the author jumped, the author's writing and is like, here, let me just write this in there. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. I am I am him who is, who, who was, and who is to come. I am the Almighty. Jesus is proclaiming that. He has declared himself the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He claimed this in the beginning of this book, and he will claim it at the end of this book. The Alpha and the Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. And the alphabet is what makes up words and gives us knowledge. Jesus is the first and final source of knowledge. And so he is omniscient. He is all-knowing. Jesus claimed to be the beginning and the end, which speaks of him being the eternal now, living in the eternal now, seeing it all in one scene from beginning to end. He sees it all from start to finish, and so he is omnipresent, all present. He also claims the same title as God the Father did for himself, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He is omnipotent, all-powerful. Speaks of his sovereignty, of who he is all the way through. He declares himself to be Jehovah also by calling himself the Almighty. Isaiah 9.6 said that he would be called that when it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
We do not worship three gods. We do not worship three gods. We worship and we serve just one God. And Isaiah 44, 6 says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. There is no God. The Almighty translates to the one who has his hands in everything. He has his hands in everything. I don't know what you're going through this morning, but he has his hands in everything. He is the Almighty. Is he your Jehovah today? Is he your Yahweh? What do you need today? He is that. He is that. He has his hand in everything. If, if he is all-knowing all, all, all and all-powerful and all-present, he knows where you're at today, right now. What are you battling? Man. Jesus has full control over everything, past, present, and guess what? Even the future. We've learned this morning that one of the blessings or the blessings come from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth to him who loved us and washed us from our sins by his own blood. That's what we get to celebrate this morning. Now, I know that it could be a sad kind of time when we start thinking about the way he died, why he died, all these things. But man, what we're reading here in Revelation, man, we should be rejoicing. We have nothing to fear as believers, man. He has done all that so that we can have the boldness to move forward in this world. If he is the Almighty who has given us everything. Man, we're going to be doing some worship songs, so as you partake, worship. Give Him honor. Give Him praise. He has dominion over all. Does He have dominion over your heart? Let Him be that to you today. So that as you partake with, by yourself or with your family, however you want, if you want to go grab your kids so all you guys can, can be together, do it that way. Spend some time with Jesus, the one who is, who was, who is, and is to come, the Almighty. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, what a blessing it is, Lord, to know that you are in control. Lord, as we see in the revelation of Jesus Christ just who you are, Lord, that you yourself would speak and tell us that you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end that you are him who is and who was and is to come, that you are the Almighty. Lord, we glory in that this morning. Lord, as, as, as we take this time this morning in our service to remember all that you've done on our behalf, once again, Lord God, we are in awe that you would even do that for your obedience. Lord, as you wrote to John here, Lord God, it was after the fact. And man, the, the, the blood of Jesus was just as important after the fact. 
Thank you so much that people can be saved because of that. Oh, Lord. If there's someone in here, Lord God, who does not know you, Lord, it would be foolish of them to even want to partake in communion because it would mean nothing to them. Lord, unless they come to understand your grace and your peace, they really don't have any business taking it. And so, Lord, I pray that right now you would capture them. That this morning, Lord God, their hearts would be in a place to receive all who you are. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, and you're, you're thinking, well, I was going to go take communion, it really would mean nothing to you, except for the fact that right now he wants to give you salvation. And then it can mean something amazing. And so if you're here this morning and you need Jesus in your life, just slip up your hand so I can pray for you right now so that as you come to receive communion, it will mean something totally amazing to you. Is there anybody? If you're in a place right now as a Christian that you need to repent, do that before God right now, before you partake, so you're not partaking in an unworthy manner just be pure. So Father, I pray for our people here. Bless them as they partake in Jesus' name.